Today, we're going to be continuing our lesson series on the doctrine of prayer. And just by way of review, um, what I want to do before diving into the section that we're going to be talking upon today, which is the Lord's Prayer, wanted to do a quick review over what we have learned thus far. So first and foremost, as you know, prayer is something that is misunderstood, so to speak, within Christian circles. Um, unfortunately, we you know, we see many times many people take a wrong idea, wrong conception as it pertains to what prayer is and what we do in prayer. And, you know, one of the things that I mentioned, especially in my first lesson, was that first and foremost, prayer is not us commanding God as though God was some sort of genie and we were um, his master. No, nor is Prayer supposed to be some meaningless repetition that we're just repeating without giving any thought to it. Nor is prayer merely talk therapy. But rather, as our confession um, defines it, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things that are agreeable to his will in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with confession of our sins and the thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Now, one of the things that I emphasize was the fact that prayer is efficacious, that prayer does work. Matter of fact, as we saw in reading um, 2 Kings with Elisha. But there are some presuppositions that undergird that that make it so. For example, God is really present. For see, if God didn't exist, then who would we be praying to? Secondly, God is in control of all creation. That is another presupposition. For again, if God was not in control of everything around us, why in the world would we be praying to him in the first place? If he could not, if he had no control over the surrounding. Thirdly, that God is approachable. We can come to him. He isn't some distant, far off God that we cannot communicate with. And fourthly, that we are in a covenantal relationship with him through Christ. Because of all of these presuppositions, we can be confident that our prayers are indeed efficacious, that it is not meaningless, that when we do pray, that God will answer according, of course, to his will. And lastly, when it comes to prayer, there is a mindset that we have to have in praying. And if you recall from my last lesson, I spoke on this and I mentioned that there were 10 things that you know we needed to keep in mind as it pertains to the type of mindset that we needed to have. The first of which was we need to have reverence. Understand who you are communicating with. It is God, the God of the universe. Secondly, we must be humble. We cannot come like in Luke 18, the Pharisee who thought of himself as righteous and holy, but rather like the tax collector, humbled. Third, we must be thankful. We must come to God in thankfulness. Fourthly, we must have understanding when we come to God in prayer, not just merely say things without giving any thought to what we are saying. Fifth, there must be focus in what we are saying. We must be focused. We cannot allow as difficult as it may be, 
to allow for distractions to, to, to flood our minds and keep us to not being focused in our prayer. Six, we must have trust. We must be able to pray in such a way that we believe that God will answer our prayers. Seventh, we must be sincere because God knows our hearts. So no need to be insincere in our prayers. Eighth, we have to be persistent. Not that we can bend the will of God or somehow cause God to go against what he has already ordained, but more so to show our dependence upon him. But coupled with persistence, we must also be patient because, see, God doesn't work according to our schedule, but according to his. So we must be patient because sometimes a yes from God may not be an immediate yes, but a delayed yes. So we must be patient. And tenth, there must be a submissiveness to his will because God will not always answer our prayers in the affirmative. Keep in mind, God's aim for us is to sanctify us, not to spoil us. So then, therefore, that means that there will be times in which God, for his glory, will tell us no, and we must be humble enough to submit to his holy will. So, you know, that's what we've covered thus far. Today, we're going to now be turning our attention to the Lord's prayer. You know, the disciples in Luke 11 came up to Jesus and asked them, well, teach us how to pray. And in teaching them how to pray, the Lord, Jesus, gives them the Lord's Prayer. Now, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, gives us the, you know, the, the full um, prayer that Jesus gives them. And if you have your Bibles, if you turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, we read this. I mean, we recited every Lord's Day, but I'll go ahead and say it again. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So that is the Lord's prayer. We are, of course, all familiar with this prayer. Now, while this prayer can be a prayer in and of itself, in particular, if it's done with understanding, we should look at this as, you know, a template, an outline for how to pray. Much in the same way, if you recall, when we went through the Ten Commandments and we talked about the fact that each of those ten propositions are, you know, basically teaching us, you know, the fullness of, of God's moral law. Each of the propositions in the Lord's Prayer, they're teaching us something as it pertains to how we are to pray. Now, if we were to break down the, the Lord's Prayer, we can pretty much break it down into eight parts. You have first the preface, which is our Father who is in heaven. And then you have the six petitions or requests. You know, one, hallowed be your name. You know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The six petitions. And then afterwards, we have the conclusion. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So we're going to spend this lesson and then the final two after that, examining all eight parts of this prayer piece by piece, part by part. Today, we're going to be focusing in on the preface and that first petition. So let's go ahead and begin. Let's uh, take a look at, first and foremost, the preface to the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father, which art in heaven. So 
in this preface, there are three points that I want to make that I want to bring up that I think is important for us to consider in regards to how we are to pray. So the first part that I want to look at is what Jesus says at the very beginning. He says, our father. Know what he says here. Jesus doesn't say my father, which are in heaven, nor does he say your father, which is in heaven. He says our father, which are in heaven. Because see, in our prayers to God, there is a reminder of the union we have with all believers. We have to keep in mind the fact that we are part of one body. And as such, our prayers ought to be mindful of the brotherhood of saints. See, Christianity is not an exclusively individualistic faith. Now, obviously, you know, our salvation is individualistic in the sense that Christ saves individuals. But, see, when we are saved, remember, we are adopted into the family of God. We are part of one big family. And the prayers that we make ought to reflect that truth couple of passages kind of highlighting this union that we have, this one body. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is one body. And then Paul writes in Romans 12, verses 4 through 5, For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And then again in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread, being Christ. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. See, all of these passages are teaching the same truth. Though we are all individuals, we are all part of one body. Now, in teaching this, this does not mean that there won't be times in which our prayers won't be centered on ourselves, because undoubtedly that, that will be the case. However, our mindset should still be one in which we are not purposefully or mindlessly neglecting the saints in our prayers. Now also, this attention to other believers in our prayers doesn't imply that we don't pray for unbelievers as well. For we see in other passages in the Bible the necessity to pray for all sorts of people. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-2, through 2, Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil, tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So we see the admonition here to pray for even the kings, our rulers. And then in Matthew 5, verse 44, but I say to you, 
love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. So again, we see the admonition here from Jesus to love our enemies and pray for them. So in saying that we focus on the brotherhood, that doesn't mean that we neglect others as well. But while we ought to pray for all sorts of people, the mindset that we ought to have in our prayers in one that is community focused, because God in redeeming us has placed us within his family. So that's the first point that I want to draw out from this preface here is that the second. So know what Jesus says. He says, our father. See, in and of ourselves, we don't have the right to call God father. We are by nature children of wrath. We were at one time, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter two, without God. And having no hope. So to suppose that we can just call God our father in light of our natural condition is to be blind and arrogant to how sinful we truly are. I mean, the psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 50, verses 16 and 17 to people who were so arrogant as to think that they are on the side of God. The psalmist writes, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth. What right do you have? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. What right do you have? How dare you? Understand, the only reason we can call God our Father is because we have placed our faith in Christ and are in Him. John chapter 1, verses 12. But as many as received him, that is Christ, to them he gave the right, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You hear that? To them who believe in Christ. John Calvin, he writes this, he says, Jesus Christ, being the true son, has been given to us as a brother. So that that which he possesses as his own by nature becomes ours by adoption. If we embrace this great mercy with faith. See, our access to God is only through Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter three, verses eight through twelve. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And listen to this here in verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and confident access through faith in him. Our access to the Father is through Christ. So something to, to, to consider here. While Jesus, in giving the Lord's Prayer, does not explicitly state this in his prayer, see, what we are implicitly being taught in praying our Father is that we are placing our faith in Christ and are in fact, in another um, sense, we are praying in Jesus' name. Now, 
there's going to be some people, some agitators, some people in disagreement who may argue and say, wait, wait a minute, JP, aren't we all the children of God? Didn't he create all of us? Doesn't even Paul acknowledge as such in Acts chapter 17, which when you look at Acts chapter 17, when Paul is talking to the Athenians in verse 28, we do read Paul saying, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also we also are his children. So what are you talking about? I thought we are all his children. One thing I wanted to note, because I know that this is something that we've seen so often, many people just um, say this, uh, the word children that we see in Acts 17, and then we also see in, in John chapter 1, that word is being used in two different senses, and it's so important to keep that in mind. When we read Acts chapter 17, the word children is being used in the sense to explain how God created us and sustains all of us. So from that standpoint of God creating us and us existing in him, we are his children. He is our father. However, in John chapter 1 verse 12, the word children is being used in the sense to explain how we are saved from the wrath of God. In this sense, it's used in a more covenantal sense. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ have been imputed Christ's righteousness and has had their sins imputed to Christ. So children in Acts 17 is being used in a more ontological sense, whereas children in John chapter 1 is being used in a more salvific sense, a more covenantal sense. Now, more support is given to this understanding when we consider what Jesus calls some of the Jews who refuse to truly believe in him. In John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. Also, again, Paul mentions in Ephesians 2, verse 3, that among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So we need to understand that. So when we're reading this and we're seeing this term of father and us being his children, understand that we're talking about it from a covenantal standpoint, from the fact that we are now adopted into his family and as such, placing our faith in Christ, we have the ability and the right to now call him our father. Now, the, the last point as it pertains to, to the preface. So we saw um, the first two words, our father, but then he says, our father, which art in heaven, who is in heaven. Now, that's interesting because... God is omnipresent. So it's not like God just resides in one specific area of the universe. I mean, Psalm 139, verses 7 through 8. I mean, the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. So we can't escape the presence of God. So what does he mean when he says, our father who is in heaven? You know, when Jesus is stating this, he is not indicating that God is residing in one place. Rather, this is a reminder to us of God's majesty and his holiness. 
if you read Ecclesiastes chapter five, verses one through two. So Solomon, he, he says this. He says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. See, when Solomon writes this, what he effectively is saying is God is holy, God is pure, and you are sinful. Remember who you're talking to. So when Jesus says our father in heaven, it is a reminder that God is holy and we're not. So we need to be mindful of what we are about to speak before this holy God. Now, that reminder of God being in heaven nicely segues us into the first petition. Hallowed be thy name. God, again, is holy. And as such, we ought to sanctify his name in all that we do. When we pray to God, first and foremost, first and foremost, we ought to be glorifying his name. The psalmist writes in Psalm 96, verses 7 through 9, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Matthew Henry, he writes this. He says, We must begin our prayers with praising God. And it is very fit he should be first served. And that we should give glory to God before we expect to receive mercy and grace from him. Let him have praise of his perfections and then let us have the benefit of them. So when we go to God in prayer, we must go to him, hallowing his name, sanctifying his name, glorifying his name. Now, in regards to the term name, if you remember what was taught in the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, then hopefully you remember that when we talk about the word name, we're not merely talking about God's literal name, but rather anything by which God makes himself known. So that would include God's titles, God's attributes, God's ordinances, God's word, God's works. Matter of fact, we read this in Psalm chapter 138, verses 1 through 2. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness. There goes an attribute. And your truth. There goes another attribute. For you have magnified your word. That is the scripture. According to all your name. For us to hallow God's name is not something that we are merely doing with our lips in prayer, but also doing with our minds while praying and following up with our actions after prayer. See, in this first petition, not only are we acknowledging the majesty of God and adoring his glorious name, but we are also petitioning to God to enable us to glorify him in all that we do. Remember, what our chief aim is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 calls us to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. That same Greek word, hagiazo, that Peter uses here is the same word that's used for hallow in the Lord's Prayer. Thomas Vincent, in his little book, 
explaining the shorter catechism. He writes this as it pertains to what we are to pray for in this first petition. He writes this. He says that God would enable us to hallow and glorify his name by confessing and forsaking our sins, which rob him of his glory, by admiring and adoring him in his glorious titles and attributes, in his infinite excellences and perfections, by believing, loving, and obeying his word, by observing and attending upon his worship and ordinances, by magnifying him in his works and making use of his creatures for his glory, by sincere, diligent, zealous, and constant endeavors to promote his honor and interest in our places and relations, and that the chief design of our thoughts, words, and actions may be the glory of God, and that he would enable others also to hallow and glorify his name. So to wrap all of this up, in looking at the Lord's Prayer, what we are seeing in the prayer is a pattern for how we ought to pray in just the first two clauses that we looked at the preface and the first petition. We already see the focus that Christ makes on the glory of God and the reminder of our need for Christ and our union with other believers. God is not just my father or your father, but our father if we are in Christ. He is our father through faith in Christ, which is why we can call him father. Not only that, but he is a holy father who wants us to glorify him in all that we do. So, you know, as I finish my lesson for today, let us not neglect to keep this in mind. Let us not neglect to pray one for one another. And let us not forget to glorify our father in heaven in all that we do. So this wraps up the lesson for today. Next Lord's Day, we will look at a few more of those petitions.